Welcome to the Queen of the Sciences podcast, conversations between a theologian and her dad. I'm your host, Sarah Henlicky wilson And I am Paul R. Henlicky. Today on the show, our topic is poor Anselm. Anselm is one of the most slandered theologians of the medieval period, despite being also one of the most famous and influential, chiefly for his work, Cur Deus Homo, Why God Became Human, in which he attempts for as what appears to be the first time in church history to give a thoroughgoing and detailed explanation of why exactly it is that the divine son of God became human and died. How exactly did it solve the problem that existed between human beings and God? And for this act of faith-seeking understanding, Anselm's honor has been continually attacked, starting with his near-contemporary Abelard, who did not like his answer and gave his own, which is, you know, even worse than Anselm's, but we'll save that for another day. And then in the present day, most famously in the book that nearly everyone is required to read in seminary on the atonement called Christus Victor by Swedish theologian Gustav Alain, which we will come back to in a bit. But um, Dad, I just sort of had this in my mind. I wanted to go back to Anselm, and um, I had this feeling anyway that he had been unjustly treated. But I can't say I was a really strong partisan until I went and reread Cordeus Homo and Christus Victor for this. And by the time I was done with both, I was so outraged at the slander against Anselm's honor that I was determined that in this episode, we will make satisfaction for the sins committed (laughs) against him. You're going to rectify the dishonoring of Anselm by making satisfaction in this episode. Uh, Preach on, sister. (laughs) A very Anselmian thing to do. And I would say, furthermore, necessary and righteous to do so. Well, it's uh, the whole thing is such a muddle, I, I hardly know where to begin. Um, but I think we should begin probably just with a brief overview of Anselm's arguments and why he felt necess- necessary to make the argument at all. How does that sound to you? It sounds good. Let, before you launch into that, let me share with you my anecdote uh, about the same uh, experience. Uh, I must have been very indoctrinated in this anti-Anselmian view. Uh, probably in seminary. I can't remember where I picked it up. But when I was a graduate student at Union Seminary, Christopher Morse, who was my doctoral advisor, once uh, he required me to teach the text, Why God Became Human, as his teaching assistant. So I had to read it, and we discussed it. And I just kind of stubbornly shook my head and said, I don't like Anselm. And uh, he challenged me to rethink that. And uh, that has stuck with me over the years. So that's enough said. Let's continue with your sense of outrage and how you're going to rectify it. Well, let me just add my quick graduate school anecdote, too. I actually took a course on the atonement with Bruce McCormick at Princeton Theological Seminary as a master's student, and then I was a teaching assistant for the same course as a um, PhD student. And uh, he definitely was not an extreme anti-Enzelmian by any means. Uh, certainly, you know, gave it a good uh, coating of Bart, as uh, as McCormick was wont to do. But I didn't get it from him. It was really from Alain's book. And, of course, the, the thing about being especially a Lutheran seminary at a reform seminary is that you read Alain, who's Lutheran, and then who, you know, triumphantly marches in with the true Lutheran doctrine of the atonement, which, you know, he pits Luther against Anselm and says that actually there's no trace of Anselm left in Luther. So, of course, you know, I had to take sides. I had to be on Alain's side. But um, now from the greater position of uh, theological maturity, I can <laughs> look back at Anselm and say, well, he, I mean, he has some, I mean, I look at Alain and say he has some good points, but his account, I think, especially of Anselm, is honestly unjust. Oh, the irony. So, okay, well, let's get into it. So the basic um, framework of the the text of Cordeus Homo is that Anselm is having a conversation. He's a, an abbot or, um, or something like that um, in his uh, monastery, and he is uh, um, talking to a younger monk or friar, I suppose, named um, Boso or Bozo. It is 
thought that perhaps the English expression bozo for an idiot is taken from Anselm's conversation partner, which is unfair to bozo. He's actually a, a very uh, clever interlocutor in this uh, text. And anyway, what they're trying to do together, and I think it's really important to say this in our postmodern age obsessed with subjectivity, Anselm is clear at the beginning and at the end and throughout that he is trying to understand and that all of what he says is subject to checking by the scripture, but he is for the sake of faith trying to give a good account of what this all means so that we can understand our faith better. Not that it is exhaustive or that it is the foundation of our faith, but that it is a good exercise and he is willing to take correction. So first of all, this uh, kind of common stereotype of medieval theology being extremely rigid and dogmatic in the bad way. I think um, it's built into the text a kind of subjective humility. Quite to the point, and let me make a few remarks about that. Anselm is famous for saying he wants to argue theology solo ratione Latin by reason alone and remoto Christo by bracketing the knowledge of Christ, remoto Christo, for the sake of fides quirens intellectum, faith-seeking understanding. And these um, methodological moves have made Anselm the whipping boy of Protestant anti-intellectuals who want to uh, say that his entire project is a a bad faith exercise in theoretical reasoning and so forth. But this is to really, as you point out, really to miss any kind of just or even adequate reading of Anselm's purpose. Karl Barth, as you mentioned earlier, actually wrote an early book which he, to which he gave the title, Fetus Quirin's Intellectum, Faith-Seeking Understanding, in which he probed Anselm's approach to the theological discipline. And he demonstrated, I think, beyond the shadow of a doubt, that Anselm definitely locates himself inside of the Christian community of faith. Of course. <laughs> how, how could he not? <laughs> of course. Yeah, I know. But, but the point is, is he's responding on the one hand to the Neanderthals who say, don't question, don't think, just believe, just accept it on ecclesiastical authority. And it's against that kind of authoritarianism, what we call today fundamentalism in theology, that Anselm's theological project is projected. If you cannot come in faith to understand the reasons for what you believe, you don't really believe because you have no idea what you're believing. Right, right. It's just a submission to authority. Yeah, and also simply to to make a theological assertion or explanation is not in the same breath to claim that it is exhaustive or or that you are done thinking either. I mean, anyone who studies theology, and I hope our listeners out there who are interested enough to follow our podcast realize that you never run out of things to ruminate on, and there's no end to the insights and refinements that you can bring to it. So making a statement that seems satisfactory does not mean the closing off of the topic either. That is kind of a bizarre misunderstanding also of what theology intends to do. And on the other hand, there's with this exercise of human reason in the discipline of faith, there come those aha moments in which the believer grasps the fittingness or the deeper reasons uh, for why God acted as God, in fact, has acted in Christ. And that's at the heart of Anselm's theological project. Those moments of aha Uh, amount to wonder and adoration, as I'm sure you'll go on to tell us. The seeking of understanding should also be matched um, along the way with moments of confession of faith and adoration of God. Um, That that is the other, I mean, it's not a a never-ending spiral of speculation, but actually does come to the point time to time in uh, in confession of faith. Well, anyway, so again, let me just give a quick overview of what the whole point of, of the book is, and then we'll, we'll get into it bit by bit. So the basic question is, why did God become human? And more specifically, how exactly did God becoming human and then subsequently dying somehow affect human salvation? That seems unfitting for God. This is a, a recurring term that we'll come to, but also unnecessary. What really struck me, Dad, actually going through 
true, Anselm, this time, is that in some ways, even more than a text about the atonement, it is an extended meditation on freedom and necessity in God. And I think this is... is perhaps intrinsic to the way the question is asked, but almost unavoidable for us who are definitely limited <laughs> creatures who operate under a lot of necessity and lack a great deal of freedom. Uh, we can't simply do whatever we will to do or imagine that we can do. That's probably why we write fiction so much, because of all the limitations that we have. But the, the what Anselm and Bozo are trying to figure out basically is, if God is, as we confess, omnipotent, then why not just solve the whole problem of human sin by fiat, basically? Why not just wave the divine wand and say, okay, all is forgiven, all is restored, all is okay, all is just now? Why exactly did this whole fixing of the human problem take the form of the son taking human form and then dying. It seems extremely bizarre and not a little shocking. Um, and I think the fact that it is shocking is a good thing. I mean, it's to the, the uh, credit of the, this treatise that it's really taking seriously the question of why it had to be this way. You know, there's a, a little bit of con con historical context would help elaborate on your remark there, Sarah. Anselm is writing at the beginning of the High Middle Ages, when Christian theology is transitioning out of the monasteries where it had been kept alive through the Dark Ages and into the academy, into the university system that's going up in Europe. And this is at the same time that the Islamic critiques of Christianity are becoming increasingly well known and the critiques stemming from the Greek philosophers whom the Muslims had preserved and were now transmitting into Latin culture. And as well, the, uh, the Jewish uh, people, believers living in Europe. And it was these three, Jews, Muslims, and the philosophers, the ancient Greek philosophers, who seemed to combine and say that what Christians say about the incarnation and the cross is unworthy of God, utterly unfitting that the Lord of the universe should become a mortal human being and die a shameful death on the cross. That's the historical context in which Anselm turns to this question, why the incarnation, why the cross of the incarnate one? Right. And I think it's um, easy and cheap nowadays to say, aha, it is unworthy. So there, can you handle that? Which, <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, uh, it doesn't really advance the conversation in any way. And it just makes it utterly arbitrary. I mean, why not say that um, vomit is delicious to eat? I mean, it doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> there is a, a actually good solid reason for trying to understand because you can't just take these assertions, however, you know, exciting or shocking or or even deep and meaningful without being able to give some account of why that is so. Anyway, so for, for Anselm, basically the, the three terms that are being worked through here, the first is necessity. So that means in this philosophical language is that God had to do it that way. And that can't be right because that basically implies that there is actually something greater than God, some force extrinsic to God that forces God's hand. He has to solve the problem in that way. So right off the bat, that is rejected as a solution. It can't be that God saved us this way because he had no choice. It has to be that God has a choice. But then if you flip to the other extreme and say, God is free to do it absolutely however he wants, and I believe this becomes kind of a central piece of, of later medieval nominalist theologians, is then God sort of at random plucks out a solution and because he's divine and all-powerful says, yeah, this is the one that I like best, or oh, I'll just go with this one, whatever. But don't worry, I made it the, the mechanism of salvation, so you can just trust in that. I, I can't explain why, but you know, I mean, I'm God. I have an infinite number of choices. I had to pick one, so that's it. Um, that would be the, the freedom extreme of the argument. And where Anselm comes to in the middle is what the term he uses continually is fittingness. Now, I 
have to admit I have a somewhat um, contentious relationship with this word because I have heard the concept of fittingness used, especially where human culture and lives are concerned in ways that strike me as very manipulative um, and probably not giving a good account of themselves. But again, fitting is one of those things that you can just assert without explaining. But I think in Anselm's case, he does assert that there is fittingness as the, I would say, like mediating reality between necessity and freedom in how God acts. But then the entire treatise is working out why and how it is fitting for God to work this way from within the logic of the Christian faith and what we know from scripture. You could connect that with what a much later theologian, Jonathan Edwards, held that in theology or in the doctrine of God, we need to affirm a dispositional ontology. That's a fancy way of saying that God is inclined by his being to act towards creatures in a certain way, but never necessitated. And so when you understand the necessity of the cross, it is necessary that Jesus three times uh, uses that divine passive expression in the passion predictions. Uh, It is necessary, it is fitting. It's in this sense that this is congruent with the the character of God uh, and a apt expression of his being and purpose in relationship to creatures, though without this idea that there's some extrinsic requirement forcing God to act in this way. No, it's a free a free choice of his love. Yeah, I like the emphasis there on disposition and character and love. Uh, And that brings me to another point, which I find is that one of the reasons Anselm is so inaccessible is because of the terminological shift, as we discussed before, like justification by faith is not a lucid term anymore. And I think a lot of the the terms that, that Anselm uses, they still exist in English, but they don't have the same association. So let me just take honor. So one of the things Anselm goes on to say is that God's honor has been damaged by human sin and therefore must be restored by an act of atonement. And nowadays, again, people tend to take umbrage and think that God is some kind of prickly, egotistical, feudal jerk who was like, how dare you hurt my property and my reputation, and then needs people to, you know, fall on their knees and grovel at him and make it up to him, but then with interest as well. Anselm says this, that it's not just the debt, but also what could have happened if the sin had not been committed. God has lost that too, you know, and and so forth. There's this whole kind of framework of both debt and honor that I think is very off-putting today. But I think if we retool honor in terms of something like integrity, which is a still very um, a passionately loved word and concept nowadays, I think it makes a lot more sense. What Anselm is getting after here is how can it possibly be an act of integrity on the part of the loving creator God simply to forgive sins. And let's talk seriously about sin here. You know, again, this is not little tiny peccadilloes or whatever. I mean, those are also sins. But I mean, truly the sin of the world and the incredible evil that has been wrought by human beings against one another and against the earth. And also, I mean, if you think seriously as a Christian, also against God, those are real sins too, and really deadly. How can God simply just wipe them away that is not in keeping with God's character or God's integrity? So in a a sense, the issue is that human sin has put forward a challenge to how God will maintain his own integrity in the face of what his creation has done. That's opposed to the typical idea in contemporary Protestant Christianity that forgiveness of sin is the sentimental God wink-winking. Wink-wink. You know, I don't see it. I pretend I don't see it. Uh, It's not real to me. I'm just going to forget about it. Let's move on. (laughs) All that kind of thing. And that's exactly what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. But also, I mean, it's a very cheap account of sin. And somehow it's weird. You know, we live in an age of so much 
outrage against evils present and past. And yet when we start to talk about sin, somehow that all vanishes. And sin is considered to be like these little, you know, religious violations of no consequence or, you know, an unfortunate um, sexual episodes in one's past or something like that. You know, that like the the serious, true evils that mar our everyday. I don't, I don't know why it's so hard for contemporary people to put together like real sin with the word sin. Well, and for, for Anselm, going with your interpretation of honor as the creator's integrity, let's just do a little bit of analysis there. Anselm is not like the later nominalists thinking of an omnipotent deity who can do whatever it wants arbitrarily. He's thinking from the beginning about God as that than which the creature can think nothing greater. It's a, a it's a creature-creator relationship. God, he thinks of God in terms of the creator-creature relationship. And that means that from the outset of his discourse about God's relationship to sin, he's talking about this in, in this structured way, in this covenantal way of the creator's obligation as Lord of the creation, to defend it against wrong and to right those wrongs which ruin the creature and the creation. God's honor is not his private ego. God's honor is maintaining his relationship of creator over the creation. And that means condemning, standing against and condemning and punishing that which ruins the creation, namely real, not fictitious sin. Yeah, you would think that this, you wouldn't love and trust a God who didn't take up a posture of defense against all that which damages what he has created and loves so much. It just, it, it seems, a, an, again, an incoherent separation of two concepts in contemporary thinking. Well, this brings us then to the, the second issue, because for Anselm, it's not just the remitting or forgiving of sin, but it is also the punishing of sin, that there has to be a logical connection there. And he makes the point that to remit sin, to forgive sin, is not the same as to punishment, because without punishment, there is basically no difference between an innocent and an evildoer. They have been logically and morally rendered identical. Within a certain perspective, we acknowledge that all human beings are fallen and all are sinful. So far as that goes, I have no objection to that. But I think we can see that the point is an urgent one when we do the thought experiment of putting Bonhoeffer and Hitler side by side. Are they in the same moral category? Moral relationship to God. Are they in the same moral relationship to God? Or Mother Teresa and Stalin. Are they simply because we assert original sin and the fallenness of all creatures? Is there therefore a total equivalence between Mother Teresa and Stalin? And I think any person who is not morally insane immediately says, no, there is a real difference here, and that has to be taken into account. And we see this in our contemporary outrage about victimization. None of us would dare equate the perpetrator and the victim. The perpetrator and the victim is exactly the distinction we're insisting has not been taken seriously enough. in our defense of the history's victims. And yet at the same time, it's not that we're saying all victims are by definition totally innocent. In fact, victims often go on to perpetrate or they have their own kinds of sins that are a result of that. And that's where I think you you do have to have the comprehensive view of all people being within the the network of sin that you cannot opt out of. But nevertheless, acknowledging that doesn't take away the genuine difference between the person who has sinned and the person who has been sinned against. And let me just push this point even even further, because I, I think, again, we have a hard time when we hear the word punishment, thinking that there is anything gospel connected about it. But um, this story from the news in the last year really struck me, and I think it's a, a perfect example. So there was um, this um, off-duty white policewoman named Amber Geiger, I think. She, I suppose, was tired or something. I don't know. She entered into the wrong apartment in her building. She thought it was hers, but it wasn't. She saw a black man sitting on her sofa and assumed he was an intruder and she just pulled out her gun and shot him before she realized that she was in his apartment and not hers. And um, so, of course, this went to trial and she was actually convicted, which is... um 
itself kind of unusual. It seems that police um, are more often um, exonerated. But anyway, um, the the point that I want to get to is that after she was convicted and sentenced, the brother of the man who was shot, the the man's name was uh, Botham Jean, if I'm pronouncing that right. Um, So the man's 18-year-old brother, um, Brant Jean, was given a chance to make his victim impact statements. Uh, This is something that happens um, in cases like this. And um, and this is what he said to the policewoman. If you are truly sorry, I know I can speak for myself. I forgive you. And I know if you go to God and ask him, he will forgive you. And I don't think anyone can say it. Again, I'm speaking for myself and not on behalf of my family. But I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to say I hope you rot and die just like my brother did. But I personally want the best for you. And I wasn't going to ever say this in front of my family or anyone. But I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's exactly what Botham would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I'm not going to say anything else. I think giving your life to Christ would be the best thing that Botham would want you to do. Again, I love you as a person and I don't wish anything bad on you. I don't know if this is possible, but can I give her a hug, please, please? And then he stood up and he hugged her. He hugged the woman who had killed his totally innocent brother by entering into the wrong apartments. And after that, of course, the media went absolutely nuts. And for many people, this was the most incredible witness of Christian love and forgiveness that this 18-year-old brother of an unjustly victimized man, like so many unjustly victimized black men in our society, could simply, like that, forgive um, this terrible crime. Uh, But at the same time, there was a lot of outrage, like, how dare you say it's just okay? How How dare you just say the words, I forgive you, and that erases what's done? This person's life is lost forever. Saying I forgive you doesn't make it okay. And a number of um, black Christian commentators also said, you know, we need to distinguish that forgiving is not the same as saying it's okay. And it doesn't mean that we cannot or we are absolved of addressing the huge crisis in our society that allows this kind of thing to happen again and again. Um, And there were remarks made by the the victim's parents and and the brother's parents, of course, um, talking about how how destroyed their lives were, how brokenhearted they were, the grief they feel constantly. Um, Again, an apology does not make that go away. This man's life is lost forever. But I think we see in that powerful story that we do intrinsically get the issue that Anselm is addressing that something about punishment is not is tr- it's true it's right it's not simply a vengeful act or something petty or or unworthy of our consideration that actually there is something beyond forgiveness that needs to happen to make things right again because the forgiving is good but it doesn't set things right and that's what I think Anselm is really trying to get after here yeah you know this is a really deep question the justice of punishment. It's a, a question that uh, really is behind a lot, a lot of our uh, confusion and controversy about the criminal justice system. What are we trying to do with criminal justice? It's a huge question and it's much repressed because, in fact, no matter what we say we're doing, we are punishing. And the fact that we're so uncomfortable with the fact that we punish makes uh, our conduct of the criminal justice system increasingly difficult to critique, let alone even to understand. So I think you're really on to something here. There's a, at least one sense in which punishment can be understood to right or wrong. This is the lex talionis, the law of retribution, which saturates, for example, the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy. Sin cannot go unpunished because if it goes unpunished, God the creator forfeits his relationship to the creation and lets sin become the de facto or crime become the de facto Lord of the universe. And and so in that sense, God's honor as the creator must be restored lest injustice assume dominion over the earth. Otherwise, creation and hell are actually indistinguishable from each other. Just like, yeah, 
Right, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I mean, there are certainly twisted forms of punishment, especially in human hands. So I'm not defending the concept of punishment under all circumstances and in all places and executed by all persons. But I, again, what I, I primarily want to communicate here is that Enzelm's concerns are not medieval or backward or primitive or bizarre. They are very much at the heart of con- conversations we continue to have and moral issues we continue to struggle with. So now to, to um, let's try to finally get on to what Anselm um, is saying after he's kind of set up this whole problem that there there is a profound violation of God's integrity, of his creation's integrity, and something must be done. So the question is, what must be done? What can be done? Or what is fitting to be done? Where Anselm finally comes to is that somehow human beings have to make things right again because they are the perpetrators. That seems perfectly logical, again, in, in the, the case of punishments or of the, the policewoman's case that we talked about. It makes sense that she would be the one who would either be punished or try to make things right and not anyone else because she is the one vitally concerned in the case of the terrible sin. So for from Anselm's perspective, human beings are the ones who need to set things right between them and God because they are the ones who have set things wrong between them and God. The problem is, is that human beings do not have anything to offer God because they already owe everything. Their entire existence and every good that they were intended for is already God's. So how can they possibly even fill up that because they've messed it up by sinning, much less make further recompense for what is lost? So it's basically they can't pay the debt, much less the interest on the debt, to use economic terms. And so from Anselm's perspective, then the reason why the divine son becomes human is because a human being needs to make the offering to God. However, only God has the infinite resources available in order to make things right again. And so in freely coming to take on human flesh, and this is really important for Anselm, that Christ does all of this freely and willingly and out of love, not under any compulsion or necessity, even from the Heavenly Father. Christ comes to earth and freely gives his life, which um, Anselm also says he didn't have to do because he was not sinful and therefore was not subject to, to the same mortality as sinful human beings are, and yet willingly suffered for the sake of justice, which is how Anselm interprets Christ being crucified irregularly and unjustly by human law systems. And for doing that for the sake of lost human beings, therefore the Father bestows on the Son an infinite reward. However, because the Son is as fully blessed and divine as the Father, he does not need this infinite reward. And therefore, as the final act of his generosity, Christ distributes that reward among all the sinful who believe in him and receive the sacraments. And then they can be restored to God through his act. Yes, an excellent summary of the argument. Let me just comment on that, Sarah, that saturating the argument are me- economic metaphors, as you alluded to from time to time. Anselm thinks that there is an economy of creation. The creator-creature relationship exhibits a certain economy. The Greek term oikonomia means the stewardship of a household. And so the heavenly God, the creator, is a steward of the household, which is his Uh, this earth and the creatures upon it. And so the relationship is intrinsically economical in this classic sense, a stewardship of a household. And in this relationship, this economic relationship, it's only natural uh, to speak of debtors and their debts. If I owe something in terms of a relationship and I fail to give it or perform it, I fall into debt. And that debt is then, as you described, uh, something that accumulates, and I become practically sentenced to a debtor's prison in the sense that I cannot in any way uh, pay the debt that I owe, extract myself from the hole I've dug for myself. And therefore, I need, here's another economic metaphor, I need someone to satisfy the debt, or in biblical language, I need a ransom that that pays my debt in order that I can go free and be restored to 
ordered, proper relationship with the creator and the creation. Yeah, let me just say a word here too in defense of economic metaphors and even realities, because again, this is something that is easily dismissed as, you know, as God, some kind of petty bookkeeper, you know, credits and debits and, <laughs> you know, can he just wipe it out, you know, like a, a jubilee sort of thing. I would say, and this is a, a, as much as anything, a confession on my part, it is easy for theologians to talk big about money and economics from a state of complete and total ignorance. And I have both heard it, but I have also done it. And a few years ago, I realized that I had no idea what I was talking about. So in my own way, I have been trying to economically educate myself over the last several years. And though that is much too huge to go into right now, let me just say trade, which is another way of saying economics, is one of the most fundamental human realities there is. It is so deep in human culture, in human thinking, in human behavior, that to give it some sort of pretend high moral dismissal, like, oh, I'm above such matters of money and trade and exchange and bookkeeping. Like, no, this is so fundamental to what it means to be a human being that it's just speaking out of ignorance to dismiss economic metaphors. So again, probably when I read this the first time in seminary, I I was very snooty about Anselm's language of debt. But now I realize it is as an apt a description of what human experience is like as as anything else. It It is very foundational to who we are. And I think it also brings the whole theology of redemption in Christ down to earth, gets it back on the ground. I mean, one of the criticisms of Anselm is that his so-called theory takes us out of the earth and into some ivory tower of speculation. On the contrary, as I think you're arguing, the economic metaphors make it clear that he's talking about the moral transactions that saturate everyday life on the earth. And I want to read you a quotation from Friedrich Nietzsche's Beyond Good and Evil, uh, in which he, the enemy of the faith, the opponent of all things Christian, gives the devil his due. Listen to this quotation. Nietzsche writes, Suddenly we stand before the paradoxical and horrifying expedient that afforded temporary relief for tormented humanity. That stroke of evil genius on the part of Christianity, namely, God himself sacrifices himself for the guilt of mankind. God himself makes payment to himself. God as the only being who can redeem man from what has become unredeemable for man himself. The creditor sacrifices himself for his debtor out of love. Can you believe that? Out of love (laughs) for the debtor! Exclamation point. Well, when you put it that way, it does sound pretty crazy. (laughs) It's the the craziness of a love that I like to say, of a love of God that surpasses God, of God surpassing God. But let's go on to uh, how Anselm resolves this paradox that so offends Nietzsche. Right. Well, the Nietzsche quote there, we could just take it as the forgiveness issue. And and Anselm would say just simply to reward sin with blessedness might seem like a form of mercy, but it is so opposed to God's justice that basically a gap opens up inside of God because the justice requires there to be some sort of payment or punishment or compensation for sin. And Anselm acknowledges this, and I think that's where we see the connection to Luther's more familiar language about atonement, is that indeed there is a gap inside of God between the justice and the mercy. How will they they be resolved? The way Anselm works this paradox out, and I think this uh, connects to what Nietzsche said there, is that Specifically, the divine son offers his humanity as a sacrifice to his divinity. Let me read you a quote from Anselm here. And interestingly, Anselm puts this in the context of offering honor to the entire trinity. For him, it's not a um, a divided transaction like son against father, father against son. Um, So Anselm says, since he himself is God, the son of God, he offered himself for his own honor to himself as he did to the Father and the Holy Spirit. That is, he offered 
offered his humanity to his divinity, which is itself one of the three persons, the whole Godhead to whom as man he offered himself. So um, the way Anselm works this out is that, and uh, let me Lutheranize Anselm a bit here. <laughs> what Anselm sees is that somehow it has to become possible for there to be a sacrificial self-offering of God to God. But God in himself is not subject to death, is not subject to um, crucifixion, certainly. So in order to basically become capable of the limitation of death, that is why the incarnation takes place. And Luther makes a big point in his Christological arguments that it is in the person of the Son that the death of God takes place, but only insofar as it is the Son of God who is incarnate in the, the human flesh. I think Luther pushes a little bit farther than Anselm is comfortable with on the true death of the Son. I think Anselm pulls back a little bit and says that somehow the divinity is less affected. Um, maybe that shows more of the, the influence of the Tome of Leo version of Christology that pervaded uh, Western theology. Yeah, I think, I think you got your finger on something there because I also think in Luther's theology of the atonement, there is a genuine confrontation between the father and the son on Golgotha. Uh, the son's cry of dereliction, the silence of the father, and so forth. That We can get into that at the end of this podcast a little bit to talk about how Luther is similar and dissimilar from Anselm. But let's, let's continue with this, uh, this discussion of the relationship of justice and mercy and how Anselm reconciles them. Well, let me do this by reading from the final um, or almost final chapter of the book. And I think this is really important because, again, the tendency is to see Anselm as working out some kind of dispassionate economic transaction or execution of punishments, as Alain likes to say, this juridical legalistic thinking, which, again, by the time I got to the end, I was so outraged at this interpretation. All right, let me read the quote here. Anselm says, when we were considering God's justice and man's sin, God's mercy seemed to you to vanish. He's talking to Bozo here. But we have found how great it really is and how it is in such harmony with his justice. God's mercy is in harmony with his justice that it cannot be conceived to be more great or more just. For indeed, what greater mercy could be imagined than for God the Father to say to the sinner, condemned to eternal torments and without any power of redeeming himself from them, receive my only begotten son and give him for yourself. And for the son himself to say, take me and redeem yourself. For they as much as say this when they call and draw us to the Christian faith. And what could be more just than for him to whom the price more valuable than every debt is paid to forgive every debt? I mean, that's an extraordinary conclusion to the whole thing, this panegyric of praise to the Holy Trinity for being perfectly just and perfectly merciful, and all of it out of this act of love that is freely given to sinners and says, here, take me and be right with me in that way. I, I mean, I... How close that is to Luther's joyful exchange, right? Remarkably. Right. Uh, now, we'll, we'll talk about some subtle differences in a little bit, but... Uh, I think you're right that unless you want to commit the intellectual sin of anachronism and criticize Anselm abstractly without regard to his place in the Christian tradition and then ahistorically invidiously compare Anselm to some supposedly superior Protestant Christian viewpoint or patristic viewpoint for that matter. Uh, I think you see here that the broad great tradition, the Catholic tradition, at the heart of which is the admirable commerce, the admirabile commercium, the joyful exchange of An Christ. economic motif. Another economic metaphor. And Anselm, in his own way, is trying to uh, uh, affirm that. What Anselm is particularly offended by here in the tradition is the ransom theory of, of fooling the devil. Right. Uh, why don't you talk us through that? Yeah. Yeah, just for a minute. And this is a, a part of the Christus Victor tradition that Alain kind of... Um, uh, shuffles silently by without pay paying a lot of attention to it. But it's at the heart of why the ransom theory of the Christus Victor works. And this was the idea that the deity of Christ can be likened to the 
a fish hook. And the humanity of Christ can be likened to the bait or the worm that you impale on the fish hook, obscuring it and covering it up. So along comes the big fish, the devil, and sees the juicy morsel and thinks to devour it and destroy it. But aha, as soon as he closes his jaws on it, the divinity in the hook gets him, captures him, and defeats him. But there, there. can I just say, there's, there's two different ways of reading that, though, and I think that makes a big difference. So one is simply demonic overreach, like he just got greedy and took what he wasn't allowed to have and thereby, thereby abdicated all of his rights, and Christ got to empty out hell. And Anselm's problem with it is that it gives way too much independent power to the devil. The other way you can read it is say that the devil, under the aegis of God, is allowed to be the captor and tormentor of sinners, like he's the, you know, the captain of the guard in hell and has the right to them. And God does not dispute that because God is just. Anselm says actually that although the devil is right to torment us insofar as we deserve it for our sins, he's wrong because he enjoys it too much and he does it out of malice rather than a love of justice, which would be apparently the proper way for the captain of the guard in hell to behave. But if that's the case, then the idea is more that in seizing Christ, that that the devil, uh, who's supposed to be the executor of justice, has made a false accusation and a false charge and taken captor and tormented someone who was innocent, in fact, and thereby loses his position somehow. And um, through it, the whole, the whole, the jig is up, in a sense. But you see, in the latter, in the latter case, Sarah, and I think you're right. But in the latter case, there's no need for Christ to be divine. He's simply a just man who was unjustly devoured by the devil. Well, I think from Anselm's perspective, only a divine man could be purely innocent. But anyway, I think that the issue there, Anselm's basic problem is a devil that is too independent and powerful vis-a-vis God and actually has genuine rights over people so that the ransom has to be paid to him as if God is actually satisfying the devil's sense of justice. I think that's what Anselm is really outraged by. Exactly. That outrages him and also the implication that God defeats the devil by an act of deception rather than rightfully or justly. Right, right, right. Though I would say there's pretty good biblical precedent for the trickster, but we'll we'll leave that decide to the side for now. Okay, I have to admit at this point, I have become such an Anselm partisan that I have lost sight of genuine critiques of him. So maybe, Dad, you better take up this. Now, what for all that is good about Anselm that we have uh, restored to his good name, tell us what might be still some flaws in Anselm that we might want to think about differently. Well, I think you've uh, very nicely laid out for our listeners why some of the typical criticisms of Anselm are just so off base and so unjust. It's you uh, mentioned to me earlier that we could bring up Aulain's anti-Roman Catholic prejudice and polemic, defining the so-called Latin theory as just a, a, a cipher for a Roman Catholicism that he is categorically opposed to, and that 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 dovetails into anti-Judaic co- uh, convictions, where Ansel, uh, Aulain rather indulges some rather alarming language about the law and legalism as the essence of Judaism. Oh, yeah, that that really disturbed me in a way I'd never noticed before. And I would just add, I think he reads Luther totally wrong on the law, too. But we'll get to that in another episode. Right. And and uh, Alain also kind of treats justice as a kind of a petty matter, uh, almost by definition legalistic. And the same with rationality. Of course, we've mentioned already that Anselm wants to argue articles of faith by reason, but Anselm imputes to this a scholastic logic chopping, a petty, calculating, small-minded uh, insistence on uh, distinctions that don't make a difference, as opposed to the dra- as opposed to the drama of Christ triumphing over the demonic powers. Right. And I have to say, this is a far too common Lutheran bait and switch to like say rationality and then mean by it this, you know, calculator mentality and then just dismiss all of reason because that's what rationality actually is without actually recognizing that we are always engaging in reason at all times. It's it's an insane sort of criticism to make. Or same thing, reducing law to legalism. It's it's a very, an intellectually shoddy habit that Lutherans really ought to get over. And what we get in the 
vacuum that's been created by this anti-intellectualism is the shock theology that is actively promoted in the Protestant churches. And I won't name names here, but I think you can imagine, and maybe our listeners too, whom <laughs> I'm thinking of. Yeah. Okay, let, let's go on. You were going to tell us what's good about Enza, or what's problematic about Anselm yeah, what's a, what's a serious, fair criticism of Anselm? I think it can be simplified uh, simply uh, this way. Can there really be a deliverance for the sinner in bondage to her sin, in being instructed that they can avail themselves of Christ's surplus merit in the church's sacraments? This seems to presuppose the goodwill that the sinner has forfeited in becoming a debtor to sin. The sinner might want to avoid punishment. That's a natural enough instinct. But can the sinner actually turn ex corde from the heart, from sin as something that is a true ruin of the sinner's own creaturehood and as such a true affront to the creator, a violation of the fundamental relationship of life. So there's a criticism that Anselm's account for all of its virtues that we've discussed today cannot reach us in the depths of genuine sin in which we have lost the very goodwill that would accept the punishment that sin deserves and desire to be freed from the sinfulness itself, rather than simply to be freed from the punishment that falls upon sin. Okay, can I ask a question here? Sure. Okay, it seems to me that that is conflating the movement of salvation history that concerns atonement with the movement of salvation history that concerns justification. Because it seems to me that Anselm is concerned here with, uh, for lack of a better term, the mechanism by which redemption would even be possible. But then as the quote I read at the end suggests, there still has to be the sinner making the act of claiming and making use of the son's sacrifice in order to be set right with God. But Anselm is making that point as already a believer who has already heard the good news about Christ's self-sacrifice and therefore, as we would say, by the power of the Holy Spirit, does desire this kind of reconciliation. And I think, just by the by, I think this is what Abelard was intuiting but confusing again, which is that, but how does this self-sacrifice actually have any impact on me or the sinner personally? But I would assign that not to the category of atonement, but to the category of justification. Yeah, and I think, you know, to put in a good word for Gerhard Ferdi's theology of the atonement, actual atonement, the act of atonement, part of what Ferdi's arguing is that there can be merely an abstract clarification designated by the terms atonement, which actually means at one minute reconciliation and the event of justification. Justification is practical atonement. Atonement is the uh, mechanism, as you put it, of justification. So if you don't get this connection right, something's gone wrong. That's the first critique of Anselm. Here, and here's how, from Luther's perspective, Anselm gets it wrong. And I think you can summarize this very quickly in saying, for Anselm, Christ's obedience is an active obedience in which innocent he voluntarily takes upon himself a punishment that he did not deserve, thereby acquiring an infinite surplus of merit that he himself does not need, but makes available to sinners who do need it through the church's sacraments. Which means, once again, in terms of justification, that the burden is placed upon the sinner to avail himself or herself uh, of these surplus merits of Christ for the purpose of satisfying the debt and therefore being delivered from the punishment owed to debtors. So in the essence of the thing, for Anselm, Christ is a punishment bearer 
but not a sin-bearer. Now, here's how Luther is different. Not denying the act of obedience aspect of it at all. The act of obedience of Christ is affirmed by Luther. But Luther sees something a little bit different in Christ. He sees the Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. And you know who expressed this remarkably enough, who captured this about Luther with great beauty? Uh, well, there were several Lutheran scholars I could mention, but I want to, as we're drawing to a close here, I want to mention Hans Urs von Balthasar. Oh, no kidding. And this is, I'm going to read this. This is von Balthasar. Let's just say for listeners, he's a Catholic theologian of the 20th century. Right. And he wrote about, quote, the true radicalism of Luther. And this is the quote. The Christology of substitution strikes like a thunderbolt. It is as if Luther's thought, right from its very beginnings, was bent upon filling precisely the gap that patristic theology had left open in the admirabile commercium, the amazing uh, transaction or joyful exchange in Luther's translation. Luther's Christology follows the doctrine of the pro novus for our sakes to its ultimate exclusive conclusion. And here it is understood as exchange. And these are Latin terms, mirabilis mutatio, a, a miraculous transformation, opus conversum, a work of conversion, transmutatio, transmutation, uh, and so forth. No one could take 2 Corinthians 5.21 more literally. You remember that passage. He who knew no sin was made to be sin. To be sin. To be sin, in order that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Von Balthasar succinctly captures Luther's fundamental intuition. He writes, Sins lie on Christ. This is something that must be taken seriously. In bearing the sin of the entire world, he, the sole just and holy man, that's Anselm's active obedience, active righteousness, becomes simultaneously the sole, the greatest sinner on earth. That's Luther's passive obedience. Christ is more damned and forsaken than all the saints in all reality and truth. He submitted to God the Father's eternal damnation for us. Indeed, he felt hell's punishment, period, end quote. So the emphasis there is more on, on Christ bearing away our sins and consequently our punishment rather than bearing our punishment away and consequently more like the guilt of sin than sin itself. And I suppose the connection then for Luther, especially in his early career, what he found is that the, the penitential system as it had evolved by his day uh, taught people to be more concerned about getting rid of punishment than getting rid of sin. Whereas he thought a proper spirituality would be one that disliked sin even more than it disliked punishment. In fact, he would say um, a sinner might actually come to accept punishment in order to help get rid of the sin if it came down to that. Yep, I think that's exactly right. And you must you can connect that too with the exploitation of the sacramental system that is set up by Anselm's theology. Again, you're right. It's by the time, 400 years later. So, you know, this is a long evolution and we can't directly fault Anselm for the abuse of his theology in this way. But if the idea is Christ by his sacrifice on the cross created an infinite treasury of merit and it's now at the disposition of the church to dispense through its sacraments, there the whole abuse symbolized by the selling of indulgences and the saying of masses for the living and the dead and so forth can arise because the church gets to market the infinite merits of Christ uh, to the consumers who need this to pay their debts off. 
Right. Well, and in fact, I think it's important to say that we're looking at the the corruption of the sacramental system rather than sacraments themselves. And in fact, for Luther and subsequent Lutherans, it's been very important to say that forgiveness of sins is actually imparted in the Lord's Supper. And that one of Luther's objections was that people did not attend the Lord's Supper. They were, you know, afraid of it or, you know, unwilling to go through confession to get to it. And that their attentions were more focused on on confession and the corresponding penances that go that go with it, though. I mean, Luther also would have liked to see confession better retained as a practice, too. Sure. But I, I, again, I just want to say again, it's a, a corruption of a fundamentally, I think, wise and right idea that actually in sacraments, as we've off, I've, as I've especially often emphasized in, in our episodes, is that salvation is something that takes place on the ground in real time. And the sacraments are one way in which salvation is happening on the ground in real time. That's not the the point of objection. The point is when the, as you say, the system gets corrupted or manipulated so that people's attention is primarily on how do I get out of this punishment rather than, Lord, please take away my sin. I do not want to be captive to sin. I want to be your servant and not the devil's servant. Yep. That's a really good good note on which to start drawing this to a close. I think that uh, Anselm is indeed deeply worried about the punishment, the uh, eternal torment. I think we quoted him earlier saying you in the passage, the beautiful passage you read, uh, uh, is fated to eternal torment and God provides the, the mechanism of atonement, the way out. But I think it's insufficient to say that God provides a mechanism of, of atonement. I think what we want to say is something more like God is enacting the joyful exchange in the word and the sacraments. Um, God is the reconciliation that is proclaimed in the gospel. It's not an a religious option out there for those who feel the need for it. It is God not counting the trespasses of of the world against them, but reconciling them in Christ. Well, let me use that then to say um, something in Elaine's defense, since I've been pretty hard on him in this episode. What I think, the, I think actually one of his core theological intuitions in the book is dead right. I just think he's wrong in a lot of his accusations against Anselm and his reasons for them. But what he gets absolutely right is that in atonement, and I'll extend it to justification, that God has to be the active agent. And on both sides, it's what Elaine uh, calls the double-sidedness of atonement, which is that God God is both the reconciler and the reconciled, and that he is acting both on the divine side and on the human side fully at all times. There isn't a cordoning off of God is temporarily taking the human role in order to do a human thing to solve a human problem, but that it is always a divine action. And I think that core intuition of Alain's is, is dead on, right? I think that's very good. And, you know, I like to point this out, that Christus Victor was Alain's very, very early work. And he himself, um, he himself came to realize that it was a very inadequate account uh, of, uh, of Luther's own theology, in whom we ought rather to see not only a retrieval of patristic thought, pat- patristic thought in the idea of Christ the victor over the devil, but also uh, integration of the other New Testament uh, atonement motifs, for example, reconciliation, which we've just talked about, and even uh, the new obedience of love. Here's a quotation from his much later uh, Faith of the Christian Church, which was translated into English in 1962. Christus right, Victor, this is Alain again. Right. Alain, and Christus Victor's dated in 1931. So this is 30 years later. And Alain writes, It is significant that Luther not only regards the ancient triad, sin, death, and the devil, as destructive powers, but includes also the law, as Paul did, and wrath, the divine wrath. Through this insight of Luther, Christian faith is able to view the work of Christ in the most profound perspective. Aline sees later in his life that a one-sided polemic against the legalism, alleged legalism of Anselm, uh, misses something that's crucial for Luther, 
namely that what God saves us from is God. What God saves us from is his own righteous wrath, the wrath of love against what is against love. That's why in the one of the earliest Christian writings, 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes uh, that God has delivered us uh, from idols to await his son from heaven, Jesus, who saves us from the wrath to come. Now, that's a whole long discussion. The wrath of God, of course, is a highly dangerous notion, highly risky notion, and one that offends moderns just as much as Anselm's satisfaction theory. Hmm. Very true, very true. Well, let's, let me just make a plea, therefore, to all the theology professors of the world. Please stop assigning Christus Victor, uh, and let's stop defaming Alain's character and honor by making people read an early work of his that he himself came to regard as immature. We can we can find other ways to approach the atonement question. In fact, Sarah, after this podcast, I think you would want to say to one and all, go read Cordaeus Homo for yourselves. <laughs> Yes, that too. And don't get tripped up on the vocabulary. Think through what the words like satisfaction and honor actually mean instead of just taking offense at them. And I, I just, I guess my final thought after reading this again is is the uh, importance, and I, I, this I will give to Alain's credit too, is, is seeing a wide number of issues. But for me, insofar as we human sinners are victims and feeble slaves of the powers and principalities, then yes, we need to be rescued, and therefore we look to a Christus Victor to rescue us. But insofar as we are willing accomplices and perpetrators of sin, death, and the devil, then it is not enough to rescue us. There has to be a different kind of, of thing that happens to us, and that would have to be something more like change of the heart recompense, reconciliation, possibly punishments, but something that would alter our status as willing collaborators with the very one who holds us captive. And I think if you have only one of those two views, that we are either victims purely or we are collaborators purely, you get an incomplete picture of the atonement and the salvation offered in the gospel. Let alone the complexity of the fallen creature of God, the human being. All right, well, we'll wrap up this episode, and I am delighted to announce that our next episode, at long last, will concern the Old Testament book of Leviticus. Does that mean I have to read it? You not only have to read it, you have to listen to me enthuse about it for an hour. Oh boy, this is going to be some podcast. Thanks for listening to the Queen of the Sciences podcast. For show notes and more, visit our website, queenofthesciences.com. To find out more about what we do, visit sarahhenlickywilson.com and paulhenlicky.com. Finally, please leave us a review on iTunes and tell a friend about the show.